This is the Room Now podcast. It's March 1st, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, new signs of dermatomyositis you may not have known about. And what's the new fibromyalgia hangout? Pain clinics, you say? And oh my, ONJ and bisphosphonates. This and more, but first, Great rheumatologists like us usually go to great meetings. And I'm telling you the next great meeting is roomnow.live. Check it out. It's happening in three weeks. Artie Kavanaugh and I are co-hosting it. The faculty is stellar. The discussions and interactions are gonna be unrivaled. Very cool meeting. Be there. You can also sign up and watch it all live from home. So at the top, we're gonna to talk about the Shingrix vaccine. It was a nice analysis of this in Annals of Internal Medicine that looked at the new recombinant, not live virus uh, Shingrix vaccine that they abbreviated as RZV and compared it to the Zostavax live virus vaccine they called RZL. Uh, and in this cost efficacy analysis, they showed clearly that the new live virus Shingrix vaccine is highly cost effective, much more so than the older uh, vaccine, which we know would lose efficacy with increasing age. This one does not, it's 90 plus percent in all age groups. And they also showed that it was effective even if patients were only gonna get one injection and not the required two. So if you're looking for a good reason to use the newer vaccine, and uh, you can use it in, based on this cost efficacy analysis. What we don't know though, of course, is how safe is it in our patients with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and other conditions that need it. Uh, there are no studies of this new virus in patients with our diseases and the manufacturer is not planning on doing such studies. If you talk to them, you should remind GSK it's a study they should do. On the other hand, my anecdotal experiences that we've given to a lot of patients, uh, a lot of patients have received it inadvertently. I've not seen any major flares of their autoimmune disease once they've received this, but again, that's anecdotalism. I wouldn't take that as true data. An interesting study comes from Israel. It's a cross-sectional analysis of RA patients, almost 12,000 RA patients compared to almost 54, 58,000 controls looking at the incidence of subclinical or clinical thyroid disease in RA patients and controls. And looking at both hypo and hyperthyroidism, there actually is more thyroid disease in RA patients, 16% versus 11.7% with an odds ratio of about 1.42. So a 42% increase odds of thyroid disease in your RA patients. This has been seen in other autoimmune diseases. It's not a shocking idea. The question is, should you really focus on this and make, you know, go all after thyroid disease in patients with RA? I can tell you, I've done this for many years. I think it's obvious when it's obvious. I think most of the thyroid diagnoses are made by other people. I think fishing for uh, abnormal TFTs in patients with RA is probably a, not a useful um, maneuver, but just recognize it does happen. Stills disease, again, my favorite disorder. A nice meta-analysis of a cohort looked at the predictive value of multiple features of Stills disease, especially in distinguishing Stills disease in the adult from an FUO and, or an infectious uh, FUO. And what they said in their uh, report was that arthralgia, rash, prodromal sore throat, neutrophilia, and a ferritin that's greater than five times normal, and LDH as well, were actually more predictive of Stills disease than an infectious FUO. Also, 
a three times uh, daily peak of fever is not typical of Still's disease. As you know, Still's disease has a quotidian, a one-time peak, and or a double quotidian, a two-time peak. It's either Q24 or Q12 hours. Having multiple peaks at three or more per day is more predictive of an FUO than Still's disease. An interesting report came from a medical student site that listed skin findings for dermatomyositis. I posted it because I was surprised that the medical students did such a good job um, in, in, in what they listed, and they just listed, you know, key clinical findings in dermatomyositis. Now, you know about the common ones, Gautrin's lesions, Gautrin's papules, V-neck shawl, periungual erythema, calcinosis, and the heliotrope. Everyone knows those five or six. Um, but did you know about the other ones? A holster sign. It's an erythematous lesion around where your holster is. Now, if you lived in Texas, you would know where that is. If you don't, buy a gun. Um, doesn't seem like a good idea. Um, psoriasiform changes in the scalp, uh, also another finding. Um, periungal erythema, facial erythema, general, uh, generalized erythroderma. These are all other features of dermatomyositis. Check it out. A meta-analysis of 18 studies shows that patients with multi-site pain of a higher risk of future fall. The odds ratio here is 1.74, almost a doubling of the risk in patients who have multi-site pain. I don't know about you, but a lot of my patients come in and falls are part of the story. The question is, why do they fall? Do they have a new neurologic disease? Is this a new syncopal events? Is this a cardiovascular issue? Is this a drug side effect issue? Often, it's in people who have chronic pain. And I've always postulated that pain is a good enough reason to lead to falls, either by causing weakness and disuse atrophy, leading to instability in falls, or just pain itself making people fall down. Well, this interesting study, or meta-analysis of studies, shows that um, multi-site pain is a reasonable cause of falls. Speaking of falls, bad segue, the Nurses' Health Study uh, was analyzed recently by Jeff Sparks and his group looking at the contribution of smoking on seropositive rheumatoid arthritis. Now, we certainly know this risk, but specifically they looked at what happens if the, the nurses in question actually stop smoking and would the risk be less over time? So in their very large cohort of 18 million people, I don't know, it's like a few hundred thousand, uh, they had 520, 1,528 incident cases of RA. Current smoking increased the risk of seropositive but not seronegative RA, fact already well known. What they did show was that smoking cessation of greater than 10 years, greater than 20 years, or greater than 30 years led to a progressive decline in the risk of RA. Again, even if you, um, and it was only in seropositive, however, even if you were still not smoking for more than 30 years, there still was an augmented increased risk of having RA had you been exposed. But the good news is that if you do stop, the longer you stop, the risk does go down. Um, between groups, there was no significance, but certainly an, uh, an important trend. It's a nice article by Jess Sparks. Um, an interesting two studies about scleroderma uh, and lung disease. So one study looks at um, 93 patients with scler systemic sclerosis and interstitial lung disease and shows that, um, you know, and most of these people had diffuse systemic sclerosis. Uh, about half of these patients um, develop pulmonary hypertension and did so within seven years of the onset of their scleroderma. It seems that, <coughs> excuse me for that, that a lot of these patients went on to receive th therapy for their ILD, but also 80% received therapy for their pulmonary hypertension. Uh, again, it seems that, you know, we often think that those who have interstitial lung disease 
is part and parcel of the systemic cirrhosis, the diffuse um, form of the disease. But even in these patients, pulmonary hypertension can occur and seems to occur at a reasonably high rate. Another interesting study showed that among sclerod systemic sclerosis patients who were ANCA positive, what happens with those individuals? Well, a fairly large cohort uh, looked for these people and found that almost 9% of their cohort were ANCA positive. And it's different kinds of ANCA. It's C ANCAs, P ANCAs, PR3s, MPOs, but mostly just ANCAs, let's just say. And it turns out that this cohort who's ANCA positive is at a higher uh, risk of developing ILD. So those who are ANCA positive, a 45% risk versus those who are not a 22% risk. Uh, so this is kind of interesting. They also had higher risk of developing pulmonary emboli, uh, almost 8.8% is the number here, versus 3% in those who were not ANCA positive. So ANCA might be a staging test that you can even do in scleroderma patients to see about their risk of lung disease and, and co-associations. There's another um, study recently about rheumatoid factor, I believe, uh, or CCP in systemic sclerosis, systemic sclerosis patients, also with a higher risk of ILD. Um, almost, almost 500 patients followed an academic pain center um, uh, in a single center, and these people are mainly being treated for back pain, shows that 42% uh, of those patients met criteria for fibromyalgia. Those who were, had fibromyalgia in this cohort were more likely to be younger, unemployed, have greater severity of pain and pain scores, and have neuropathic pain, depression, anxiety, et cetera. So it's, again, fibromyalgia shows up in a lot of places, not surprisingly in pain clinics uh, where they may be treated for other things. So again, they show up in GI clinics as IBS, uh, in neuro clinics as all kinds of strange neurologic complaints, et cetera. Artie Kavanaugh called these multi-organ dysesthesias. So again, pain can show up in a lot of different places. Uh, and a Taiwanese insurance claims database looked at Sjogren's syndrome and the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw. Um, and they compared almost 13,000 patients with 54,000 controls and found the rate to be higher in Sjogren's patients, 0.08% versus 0.03%. So while that sounds like it's significant and there's almost a doubling, uh, it actually isn't that great. I mean, the idea here is it's 0.08%. It's eight per 10,000. These are really, really rare events. There's a little bit higher in Sjogren's patients. Turns out the patients were also on bisphosphonates had an eightfold higher risk. So eightfold higher than 0.08% is pretty close to nothing as well. You think about the numbers. Um, Interesting report in the news this week about Peter Frampton, the rock star. I'm a big fan of Peter Frampton's. He, I was actually doing in the rock and roll business back when he was touring as Peter Frampton Comes Alive, probably one of the more famous albums of all time, 1976. Uh, Peter Frampton, uh, known for a lot of his music, he was the music advisor to the movie Almost Famous. Uh, and uh, Peter Frampton was diagnosed recently and came out both in on CBS uh, Saturday Morning News and in Rolling Stone saying that he has uh, inclusion body myositis. It turns out that about four years ago he started noticing weakness, especially in his arms, um, and then ultimately was diagnosed. Uh, he set up a center, um, the Peter Frampton uh, Myositis Research Center, um, that's going to be run out of the Johns Hopkins Myositis Center, and he's doing fundraising. He's touring the U.S., doing one last farewell tour. You should go out and support them. You should support this myositis center. 
He's in good hands with those docs. They're major league leaders uh, in myositis, and we should do some fundraising for them. Uh, two more reports. Uh, one, uh, early psoriatic arthritis patients can do better with early TNF uh, inhibition. This is a report that um, uh, we reported uh, yesterday. Uh, it's a small study, about 51 patients who have about six years, seven years of skin disease, but only six months of arthritis who are DMARD and biologic naive get put on either methotrexate with a placebo or methotrexate plus uh, golimumab. And after 22 months uh, remission, defined as DAS-CRP less than 1.6, was seen in 81% in those on golimumab and only 42% in those on methotrexate alone. So early aggressive therapy works in psoriatic arthritis. This is an ideal population. We should be very aggressive with them. Heck, we know they're coming. 30% of people with chronic psoriasis are at risk to develop psoriatic arthritis. We should be doing studies on this cohort, instituting therapy early, doing preclinical psoriatic arthritis interventions and seeing what it does. And the big news of the week was the uh, FDA coming out with a box warning um, regarding the drug for Buxistat. We've had reports um, recently, I was on the FDA advisory committee back in January that looked at this data largely based on the CARE study, uh, and now the FDA has come out with, come out with its decision. The decision is, one, a box warning. That's the most serious warning the FDA can do, warning um, those who want to use Fabuxistat that there is an inc significantly increased risk of cardiovascular death and all-cause death in individuals taking Fabuxistat. Also, in the label, there was a change to say that you don't use Fabuxistat first line, that you should only use Fabuxistat after having used other forms of urate-lowering therapy, including allopurinol. Again, the backstory on this is pretty simple. When the drug was being developed, there were questions about cardiovascular safety, uh, and it was not initially approved. They made the company go back because it looked like there was more cardiovascular events in those on Fabuxistat compared to allopurinol comparator patients. They made the company go back and do a safety study called the confirmed study, and now the safety events were flipped. There were more cardiovascular events with allopurinol, a little bit more than with Fabuxistat. The drug was approved. It's now on the market. Now there's this big uh, uh, post-marketing commitment for what's called the CARES study, C-A-R-E-S, and that actually shows, again, um, an increased risk of uh, all-cause mortality and also cardiovascular death. Turns out the study was powered to do a composite measure of a cardio cardiovascular endpoint, and that was not significant, but these other two were, and the panel looked at this and said, that's enough, let's just do, we need the drug, but we need some guidelines, and the FDA has accommodated uh, us with new guidelines. That's it, go to the website to look at these and more. We'll talk to you next week.